Again, I want to thank you. It's a joy to worship with you and see your faces and hear your voices. And I apologize that I have to leave afterwards. It was not in the Bible. We have in Exodus 15, Deuteronomy 32, this song. And this is by far the most depressing and sober song um, that he wrote. So I hope you're encouraged uh, as we read it this morning. In fact, throughout church history, this was the song read, or this was the, the song in this passage read at funerals, coupled with 1 Corinthians 15. And this was kind of the sad, depressing one that you read. Um, but here's why I love the Bible is because it's utterly realistic. It's not naive, and it speaks to every aspect of our lives in, in a really uh, hopeful way. And so uh, there's a lot going on in this psalm. We won't be able to do all of it. But as the Princess Bride says, life's a disappointment. Get used to it. Um, but there's so much here, and I encourage you to, to, to dive back into it later this week. So if you would, uh, please open to Psalm 90, verse 1, and give your attention to the good news. Oh, and I want you to ask this question too. What does Moses say that we need as human beings to live wisely? What does Moses say we need as human beings to live wisely? So now, please give your attention to the good news of a God who teaches us uh, to number our days. Psalm 90, verse 1. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood, and they are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning, and in the morning it flourishes. It's renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble and they are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we might gain a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as, as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. This is God's word uh, given to you in love. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for this passage and this psalm. Would you be with our hearts and minds to receive it soberly and graciously and with hope. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So a couple years ago when I got hired with RUF, we had July staff training in Atlanta. And I sat down for breakfast at the Westin with one of my friends, old friends. He was nearing the end of his time as a campus minister. He was around 40 years old. He was a veteran. And I remember he was looking at transitioning to other calls. I remember sitting with him at breakfast over orange juice and bacon and terrible French toast from the hotel. And he began to talk about his life and that he was struggling with depression. And he was actually experiencing a ton of doubts about his faith. 
Not, not that the scriptures weren't inerrant or authoritative, not that God wasn't gracious and merciful, but what he was struggling with was his own life. Like when he took and examined his own life when he was 40, he was like, this is not who I thought I would be. I didn't think I'd continue to struggle with these sins or I'd be this kind of a husband. I thought I'd be a little bit better of a parent. I thought I'd be a better campus minister. And he said when he talked to his therapist about this, his counselor, his therapist, called this the age of disillusionment, this point in his life, some people call this a midlife crisis, where we get to, like, we analyze and we look at our life and the veil is torn out, we see it for what it is, and we go, oh, this is where I'm at. This is the kind of person I really am, and you're, you're, you're not, no longer illusioned uh, about the, the visions of grandeur about how your life is going to turn out. Like, this is where you're at. Like, this is your marriage. This is your job. That's your boss. Those are your in-laws right? Like th- this, uh, this is a sin that you've struggled with. This is what you've done. You live in Oklahoma, right? Like this, this is, this is your life. This is your church. This is your good looking pastor. Like this is your life. Um, and I remember thinking about that, that conversation a lot. Like this is a godly guy. And yet I, I said, how can I number my days? How can I live my life so that I I, I learned to not be disillusioned at some point in my life, that I see life as how it is now, that I, that I can live wisely now. Um, and, and a few days after that conversation, I came across Psalm 90. Now, I had read it before, but ever, I read it in a new light, and I've got to be honest with you. Ever since I read this psalm, I've been, like, stressed out. This psalm stresses me out. The way it talks about God's anger and wrath, the way it talks about our finiteness, our fragility— the way it talks about uh, how, how short our lives are, it stressed me out. And I, I know a number of us, um, and this is even what it says in verse 12, right? We said it a ton. So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. And I go, okay, if I want to know how to live wisely in our short years here, maybe we should learn what Moses has to teach us in Psalm 90. And so we're going to do that this morning. Uh, the first thing we're going to see, we're going to see two things. One is we've got to be honest about our life. We've got to be honest about our life. And second th- secondly, only then can we be hopeful about God's love. If we're honest about our life, we can be hopeful about God's love. So first, honest about our life. Um, there's three things that Moses teaches us, to, to be honest, that we're fragile, that we're finite, and that we're failures. It's very uplifting. It's Moses, not me. But as a caveat, of course, elsewhere in the Bible, we are glorious creatures. All of you are endowed with a certain amount of glory. We're the crowning jewel of God's creation, created in the image of the triune God of love. Absolutely. And yet so often in our lives, we try to tend to ignore these aspects of our humanity. So we're going to do that this morning because Moses does, because God wants us to. So Psalm 90, we're fragile. We're fragile. If you read verse 3, it says, Moses goes, you, he's telling God, this is what you do, God. You return us to dust. And you say, return, O children of man. Now this is an allusion to Genesis 3. In the garden, on the worst day in human history, when Adam and Eve took their love for God alone and placed it on a created thing, and one of the curses was that God is going to say, now you're going to return back to ground. You were formed out of the dirt, and now you're going to return back there. And as I was studying and thinking about this passage a couple days ago, I saw my son in the, in the morning, my two-year-old, uh, a beam of light was cascading into our family room, and like a cat or something, he was like pawing at the dust that, that you could see visibly. I said, okay, i got to look this up, because I knew that dust I'd always heard was dead skin cells. And I don't want to disappoint you, it's not primarily dead skin cells, unless you're a reptile, okay? Um, but actually, what I looked it up is two-thirds, from what the internet says, two-thirds of dust 
is soil. Household dust is just soil that's been tracked in. The rest is pollen and bugs and carpet fibers and some dead skin cells. But for the most part, it's soil. It's dirt. What Moses is saying is, we're fragile. That is what we are. We're going to return back to that. We're going to have our son, our children, pawing at us. Some symbolism of like man's search for meaning. But like that, that is what we're going to return to. The Hebrew word for dust is to be crushed, to be pulverized. Moses is saying that's what it is. And look, if y'all live life enough, you know that's what life does to you. It just beats you down. Now it can happen in these seismic earthquakes, right? The loss of a loved one, the loss of a job, a divorce, an incredibly terrible fight with a friend that ruins things, ruins businesses, partnerships. I mean, it, it can happen like that where you're crushed, you're pulverized. Or it can happen in this slow erosion like a glacier going through a mountainside. Bills upon bills. If you're a parent of young kids, you're just tired and exhausted. If you're a parent of older kids, the emotional, right, and psychological trauma. If you have friendships that just wear you down, or a boss that you just, you're in a relationship with somebody who's critical, and all they do is just use words to tear you down, it just beats you down. It reminds me of that quote by um, Henry David Thoreau, uh, that famous quote that, the mass of men and women lead lives of quiet desperation. And a lot of us in here are just leading a life of quiet desperation. We, we wake up, we eat breakfast, we drink coffee, we go to work, we come home, and we're quietly, slowly being crushed and pulverized by life. We're fragile. To be a human being at times means to be fragile. But also, it gets worse. Thank you, Moses. We're not just fragile, we're finite. We're limited. In verse 10, if you read it, the years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. You're like, thanks, Moses, throwing an extra decade in there for us. That's great. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They're soon gone and we fly away. Like our lives is just a bunch of toil and trouble, and we fly away and we're gone. That's it. That's what he says. There's one uh, theologian named Leslie Newbigin who says um, that even the best work of our hands, the best thing we've created, my best sermon, will one time be buried in the rubble and dust of history. The best thing we've done eventually is going to be buried in the rubble of history. We're finite. Our time is limited. And and Moses uses a lot of metaphors to get this across to us, um, like dust, like we're swept away as with a flood, we're debris, leaves and dead branches just floating down in a flood. We're like a fleeting dream. He says we're grass that is renewed in the morning, and by the end, we wither. Now, we don't know when Moses wrote this, and honestly, it doesn't really matter, but he probably wrote it in the wilderness. He probably woke up one morning, and, and after in the ancient Near East, dry, you know, brown hills, if there's a nightfall, a rain, it can times produce a carpet of green grass, little ceilings on the brown, dry hills. And by the end of the day, with the arid heat and the sun, and scorches it, and it dries and withers, and it's dead. And Moses, uh, you know, I guess he didn't have a lot to do in the wilderness, just sat there and watched the grass the whole day, and goes, that's our life right there. That's it. But even worse, this is my favorite metaphor that he uses, is that in verse 9, for all our days pass away under your wrath, we bring our years to an end like a sigh. In the Hebrew, it's like a moan, like a groan. It's like someone who rolls over in the middle of the night to get comfortable and goes, ah, that's our life. Thank you. Moses, please. Reminds me of that poem by uh, T.S. Eliot, The Hollow Men, that we're all people filled with straw doing meaningless things. It's not a very, he probably read this psalm and then wrote that poem. And at the end of the poem, it's very fa- famous. He, he, this is how he ends his poem. This is the way the world ends. 
This is the way the world ends. This is the way the world ends. It's, it's crescendo, impact. We're like climax. Like, what is he going to say? And he goes, it ends not with a bang, but a whimper. Like that. Not with a bang, but a whimper. That's our life. We're a sigh. We're finite. See, as our, uh, Tim Keller says, we have to face, face the fact that we're all going to die someday. We prayed about that this morning. Our lives are so fragile and finite. And if we don't face death, then we're not facing reality. We don't face reality. Wendell Berry, the great essay, essayist and, and short uh, novelist, short story writer, said that um, you know, all of us, as, as we're at Thanksgiving meals or Christmas meals, everyone around the, around the dinner table, there's one person there who's going to bury everyone else. One person's going to bury everyone else. That's reality. And the Bible invites us to be honest about our finiteness, or we're not going to be able to live wisely. We're not going to be able to live wisely. Um, and then lastly, to, to even just pour it on, we're already mad at Moses, but now he calls us failures. He ends by calling us failures. Now, as a caveat, not, I don't mean failure in the sense that you try something and you make a mistake. Goodness gracious, that's courageous and glorious. My dad was downsized twice from his jobs. They hired somebody half his age and paid them half the, half the money. And so to pay, to pay the bills, he started, he used his savings and, and did all these entrepreneurial businesses, like four or five. And you know what? Most of them failed. And now he's at a job he hates to, to pay the bills. My dad is not a failure, right? He thinks he's a failure. But that's the most courageous thing you can do is to keep trying because life can crush you and pulverize you. That's not what I mean by failure. And that's not what Moses means by failure. What Moses says, the word he uses, is iniquity. He uses the word sin. If you notice this in verse 8, he says, You have set our iniquities before you and our secret sins in the light of your presence. Our secret sins in the light of your presence. This helps me understand verses 7 through 11. I've got to be honest with you. As I read this psalm, those like five verses stress me out the most. I'm like, why are you talking about God's anger and wrath five times? You're already calling us fragile and finite. Why do you keep beating us down with this? Why do you keep talking about our secret sins and our iniquities? That's why he talks about God's anger and wrath. Because all of us here have secret sins, habits and addictions and thoughts behind closed doors, behind the, the doors of our mind that no one else can see, and yet God sees it. That's what he says. And if we're going to live wisely, we have to be honest about the fact that God is a God who sees these, these things. And so the question it begs us to ask, of course, is that we can come here, we can go in our family, our friendships, and hide. We can act like we got it all together and we're not failures. But before God, he knows because he can see behind the doors of our lives. So what are you hiding? That's the question. What are you hiding? This passage is asking you to sober up, and me to sober up, it did that to me, to live wisely. That unless we're able to acknowledge these failures in our lives, we can't live wisely. Again, Tim Keller says, without a robust, a robust? That's not a word. That's actually not what he said. He said, without a robust, a vigorous doctrine of sin, we can't live wisely. Because look, if uh, medically, if you don't have all the facts about your physical condition, you can't get the right diagnosis and you can't get the right cure, can't get the right medicine. It's the same spiritually. If we're not able to actually acknowledge and be honest about all of our failures, to love God and love neighbor, then we can't actually be healed by God. It's not possible. Um, so we need to own our failures. Like, 
you actually said that thing in anger. Those words actually came out of your mouth. You actually lied to your parents. You thought you, they wouldn't find out. You did. They actually found out about it. They, that God knows you actually lied. You actually really did do that thing with your body. That actually happened. You actually were lazy and selfish with your time and spend the whole time on your iPhone and ignoring your family and relationships. Like, you actually did that. I actually did that, right? We have to own our failures. But here's the good news. After we're honest, there's not been a lot of good news, but there is good news. The rest of the Bible tells us that God is actually, like, God is merciful to people who own their failures, who are honest about their failures. You know, he's been dealing with failures a long time, ever since Adam, the very first human being. He kind of knows how to handle us. He didn't change his plan. He said, all right, fine. I'm still going to fill the world with paradise, with my glory and image bears. I'm just going to have to use failures now to do it. Like you and me. And we are the product of God using failures who are honest about it. That's pretty cool. So think about Adam. Screwed everything up for us. And yet, <laughs> failure, right? Okay, he's failure, right? That's pretty clear. Think about Abraham. Think about this failure. Uh, God tells him he's going to have a whole nation, a family come from his lines. And he... Uh, has a child with his slave mistress, and then pawns, to save his own skin, pawns his wife off as his sister, and she's collected into Pharaoh's harem. Failure. Think about uh, Jacob, a liar and a cheat, and stole a blessing from his brother that wasn't his. Failure. Think about Moses. In anger, murdered a man early in his life, and then anger struck a rock and was denied into the promised land. Failure. Think about David, man after God's own heart, had an affair and murdered the man to cover it up. Failure. Like, the Bible's full of failures. But don't forget Jesus, the protagonist of the story, who became fragile infant into this world and never failed. Who became finite, bound by space and time, never failed. And Jesus is the one who hung out with failures. You want to number your days? Hang out with failures. That's what Jesus did. Constantly invited to parties and he said yes to and then think about the cross, a symbolic representation of the honest, sober honesty of where our failures lead us. They deserve death. And Jesus did that for us. And what that means is your failures were nailed to the cross. They were buried with Jesus in the grave. And the resurrection is a symbol that you have come to new life in Jesus Christ. And those failures, failures no longer define you. They can't because of the resurrection. You're bound with Jesus. There's no way. You actually have hope that there's life after failures. And that's the second thing we see is that we can actually be hopeful about God's love. You can be hopeful about God's love. This shift happens in verse 12 where it says, So teach us to number our days that we may get wisdom. This is why this is right there in this psalm. Because he's saying, after this, there's nine petitions, by the way. He just goes on a rampage. Moses starts asking God for all these things. Number our days. Return, O Lord. Have pity on us. Satisfy us with love. Make us glad. Let your work be shown. Establish the work of our hands. I mean, he's asking God for everything. And, if, and essentially, in verse 14 is my favorite, where it says, it, look, this is an evocative image here. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. As dew kisses the blades of grass in the morning. As a spouse rolls over in the morning and kisses her husband to wake him up. The, and love might be satisfied. Like, this is an evocative image that, that Moses is inviting us to say towards God, that he can satisfy our love in that way. Now, how can he do that? Because he was honest first. He was honest about his fragility and his finiteness and his failures. Bernard Schlink uh, is 
trained as a lawyer, uh, but he wrote a book called The Reader. It was turned into a movie. I never saw it. Um, but he, uh, he also wrote a, a bunch of essays for Oxford, gave a bunch of essays, and the book is called Guilt About the Past. And he's a first-generation um, child of the Third Reich, post-World War II, in Germany. He was born in Germany in the 50s. And he argues throughout the book, how does a generation that is, inherits these great failures and atrocities of a whole nation, how do they deal with that? How do they actually have reconciliation and forgiveness? And he uses apartheid in South Africa as the same. And what he argues, and I don't think he's a Christian, but what he argues is that for, these, uh, for forgiveness and reconciliation to actually be possible, for you to move on from the past and the guilt about it, the perpetrators of the crimes have to be honest about all the things they did. They have to be honest and name the reality of their crimes before there's any hope of truth and forgiveness and reconciliation. And what this, I think, helps us understand what's happening here is that Moses is like, I've been honest with you, God, and now, and now I have hope that you can actually forgive me and love me. He's actually hopeful about God's love because he, he's been honest about it. And we see that he's going to experience God's love in two ways. One is this, God's presence. God's presence. Um, in verse 1, we read, it says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. He starts with that. Dwelling place is a word for refuge. It's used throughout all the Bible. It's, uh, the image is, is, comes from animals who would leave habitation and go into these caves to protect themselves. And so in a way, these caves were a place of hiding, of protection from other people. It was also a refuge. Uh, elsewhere, this word is translated as heaven, paradise. But you can't get away from the main word that it's saying here is its dwelling place. God, our dwelling place, the way in which we live in this world is not a place, it's a person. You are our dwelling place. We want your presence. Now look, we all know the healing powers of someone's bodily presence in our lives. And the greatest gift you can give someone going through grief is your bodily presence, right? Because um, they've lost someone and there's a black hole in this world that can never be filled. And in that few moments that you sit with them in your presence, in some level, you're trying to heal. That black hole will never go away. But it's a measure of healing that happens with someone's bodily presence. You ain't got to say anything. You just need to be there with them. We understand that. I mean, even young children need that bodily presence. Our, our oldest son, Luke, um, has a lot of nightmares. Um, and so he'll cry for hours. And eventually we, we just kind of bring him in our bed, right? And he goes to sleep. But I got tired of sleeping on like six inches of the bed at night. So uh, this happened a couple days ago. He had another nightmare um, about people robbing him, which I don't know where he, he gets those nightmares from. But I went down and we prayed and we talked and then I just lay with him and I just look at him and we look at each other awkwardly. And eventually after three or four minutes, he closes his eyes and goes to sleep. He's been crying for hours. What did I, I didn't do anything. It was just my presence. Somehow the presence assures us it's, it's going to be okay. We have someone's presence. It heals us. God is with us right now in Jesus Christ by his spirit. This is what we're doing this morning, reminding ourselves that we dwell with God and trying to love God and love neighbor right now. The spirit is dwelling with us. And we need to see each other physically and bodily. That's why coming to church bodily is so important. So we can experience that presence bodily together. Um, and secondly, secondly, uh, we can be hopeful about God's love after being honest. Um, not only because we can experience his presence, but also because of his mercy. Because of his mercy. If you notice in verse 3, Moses says, You, God, return man to dust. 
You're the one who, who makes us fragile. You're the one who returns us back to, to dirt. And then in verse 13, he uses the same word, return. God, return, O Lord. Have pity on your servants. Have mercy on us. I know you return us to dust, but will you have mercy and return mercy to us after we've been honest about our failures? And, and to encourage you, again, this is the story of Scripture, that God will always say yes, always. In Jesus Christ, he will always have mercy on you, always. Adam, the dude who screwed everything up, as he's leaving paradise, what does God do? He has mercy on him. He gives him a promise, he closes him, and then he gives him a promise, one day he's coming back. Think about Abraham. God gave him a child in his old age. He had mercy on him in his failures. Think about uh, Jacob. God gave him 12 sons of Israel, like the people of God came from Jacob. He had mercy on him. Think about Moses. He's hidden in the cleft of the rock. The one name that God describes himself as, as he passes by Moses, he goes, the Lord, the Lord, this is what I want you to know me as, the Lord, the Lord, merciful. That's the first word he says to describe himself to this world, is merciful. Think about David. In mercy, God gave him an everlasting covenant through whom, by the way, Jesus came. God himself came through that line. A murderer and adulterer. Like, this is just what God does. He is merciful to honest failures. That is who God is. That is what this passage teaches us. And so some of you just need to know that if you belong to Jesus, God is merciful to you in your failures. He really is. And some of you, I don't know everyone here, and some of you might be non-Christians wrestling with your faith, trying to figure things out. And I can tell you, I'm honored to be here with you. And the honor that you would take a morning to spend time with people who think about ultimate things differently than you. But I'd encourage you and invite you that is there anything else in your life where you can be honest about your failures and you'll actually receive mercy? Is there anything you go to, a relationship, an addiction that will be merciful to you? I'd invite you to consider Jesus as the thing that can be merciful to you in your failures. So what does this mean for us? A couple things. What I think this means for us is this. Um, one is, it's pretty obvious, but we just need to be honest as people. We need to be honest as Christians. So often I feel like the church is a place where we don't feel like we can be as honest about our failures, like we kind of got to put on a veneer or a mask. Um, I'm constantly trying to communicate that to my RUF students, that there are so many failures like you and me who are allowed to be here together on Wednesday night in worship. I want other students at Arkansas to feel welcome in their failures, that they can come as they are. We have to be people who welcome people mercifully. Um, I, I even, um, I, I run with this guy on Thursday mornings, he ran like the Boston Marathon. He runs really fast. And so it's like 30 minutes of hell of my life uh, on Thursday morning. And we're running and he's always like, hey, how was your morning? And I'm like, I can't breathe. Like, I really can't breathe. Can you please slow down? He's like, yeah, I read the paper this morning. I'm like, I, that's not what I said. Um, but he, we were talking and he's got, he says he has a psychology where he just constantly feels like a failure. He, and maybe some of you can relate, I can. And I asked him, what helps you get through that? And he said, you know, what really helped begin to get me through that is this church we go to, Christ Community, where I, I told a couple people some of my failings, things I failed, I screwed up in life, and they didn't treat me like a freak. That the church is a community that doesn't treat people like freaks for being honest about their failures. So we just need to be honest with each other. Um, and then secondly, again, pretty obvious, uh, we need to number our days. Now, what do I mean by number our days? I, I think this. To live wisely, to think about our fragility, our finiteness, we need to be thoughtful and intentional about how we spend our days, our practices, our habits. Annie Dillard, famously, she's a playwright and a, and a writer, uh, said, how we spend our, our days, every day, is of course how we spend our lives. 
How we spend our days is how we spend our lives. And so you want to know what your life's going to be like? Look at how you spent your day. It's pretty obvious, but profound at the same time. And so maybe at some point this week, you need to do an audit of how you actually spend all of your time. Like sit down, write a paper, like, all right, this is how much I worked. This is how much I did housework. This is how much I intentionally sought to like love my neighbor. (laughs) Zero for me this past week, right? This is how intentionally, how much food I eat. And write down what you do. I mean, I actually got an app called Moment to see how often I'm on my phone. And I'm not going to tell you what I found out from that. And it tells you how often you're on it and how many times you pick it up to check it. And I was like, I don't want to spend my life that often on my iPhone looking at a blue screen. I don't want to do that. So teach, teach you to number your days is to be honest assessment about your daily habits. Um, and again, it's synergistic in effect. With Brian Smith, because in the morning I have to wake up early, A, I usually have a smoothie afterwards, so it already, instead of a Hot Pocket or something. And then the night before, I make really wise decisions. I don't need a Hot Pocket again the night before. Um, so you see synergistic, one 30-minute decision, daily habit in my week of being intentional for friendship and exercise has now affected all these other aspects. So we can be thinking about that. And then lastly, we just, again, you need to know that God is merciful to honest failures. He's just merciful to honest failures. That's just the Bible. That's just what it is. Um, And that his anger and wrath uh, is not defining you. At the end of the psalm, we see it, right? We don't end with God's anger and wrath. We end with mercy. Establish the work of our hands, even in our fragility and finiteness. And we know that because uh, many years later after Moses, another man came into this world, and he numbered his days. He numbered every single day. And you know what? This guy thought his time, it was worth his time to go clock in and clock out at a blue-collar job for 30 years. Ten more times more than he did ministry. He thought that was worth his time. He numbered his days wisely in that way. He thought it was worth his time to let fragile children sit on his lap play with them. Some of us need to come home early from work for an hour and actually play with our kids, myself included. He thought it was worth his time to have dinner with corrupt government officials like Zacchaeus. Some of us need to go to our neighbors who think differently than us, who act differently than us, and have them over and eat with them. This man thought it was worth his time to give mercy to sexually immoral dinner guests. It was worth his time. He thought it was worth his time to be alone, silent, and pray. Some of us need to put our phones away and everything else and just sit and be silent with the Lord. It's like it was worth his time. And this Jesus thought it was worth his time to go to the cross and die for broken, fragile, messed up people like you and me. That was like worth his life. That was a wise life in his, in his eyes. And on the cross, Jesus Christ is able to say that I've satisfied the wrath and anger of God so that verses 7 through 11 are not our story anymore. That God is like, I've satisfied my wrath on Jesus, so now I can satisfy you with my love. That's our story. That is good news, y'all. That's really good news. It's like mercy swallows up our failures, like the rays of a sun on the early morning swallow up our darkness. That's what it is. I'll close with this. I thought about closing with um, uh, the movie Peanuts, Charlie Brown, but it didn't seem to jibe with everything that we've talked about. Um, And so I'd ask my brother, you should go see that movie, by the way. It's a very good movie. I asked my brother, this is from 15 years ago, and he said, I want you to share the story. And so my brother's nine years older than me. And early in his marriage, uh, they were having a really rough time and fighting a lot, having a lot of issues. And uh, in one moment, he had an affair, one time, had an affair. 
And after that affair, he said um, he was in the, he tried to go off, you know, it was a secret sin. It was, a, it was hidden. He tried to go on living his life. And eventually on Black Friday, they were checking out and they had thousands of stuff, him and his wife. Thousands of dollars. And, and he was feeling crushed, pulverized like dust because of that. And eventually he told her, um, and they, they separated for about 10 months where he lived in an apartment by himself. And he said there was this moment where he was drunk on cheap beer, Natty Light, watching a terrible, trashy television show. And it's like he finally had that age of disillusionment where like everything, the veil was torn away and he saw the fragility and the finiteness and the failure of his life right there in front of him, what he was, what he had become. And he says right there, he got on his knees, drunk, the trashy TV show on in the background. And like David in Psalm 51 and like Moses in Psalm 90 cried out, God, be merciful to me. I'm a screw up. I'm a failure. Would you be merciful to me? In that moment, in that, in that apartment, my, the Lord saved my brother. The Lord had mercy on the honest failure of my brother. And he's been living in the hope of God's love ever since. And our sins and our failures reverberate. They echo in our relationships. It's not like those go away. Him and his wife had to work through a lot of stuff. And yet she would tell you right now that he's been a changed man. Why? Because he was honest about his failures and because he received mercy when he did. And that is the good news for all of us here. And that's the good news of this passage, um, that Jesus Christ is merciful to honest failures. So let me pray for us. And, and um, again, it was great to be here, and I, I hope to come here again. Father, thank you for Psalm 90, this passage that we have to wrestle with that like, stresses me out. And yet you're so honest with us, and yet so hopeful with us. That though you live a thousand years is like a day to you, you took on and bound yourself in time. And a day became a day in Jesus Christ. And it was his bodily death and resurrection that gives hope to us, all of us, that you are with us now and you will be with us forevermore in Jesus Christ because you are a God of mercy. Amen. That is good news. And we ask this in Jesus Christ, our Lord, the God of mercy who covers our failures, who swallows it up. In his name we pray, amen.